This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Hey there! I wanted to catch you at the top of the episode to let you know that my Patreon page is changing its name and URL. Rather than the page saying Stephen Trigar and the URL ending with Stephen J. Trigar, the page is fully transitioning over to The Composer Chronicles. All members of the Patreon page will continue to enjoy all the same benefits as before, including early access to ad-free versions of every episode, access to the Patreon podcast unscripted, and all other benefits one can find at higher levels. So, if you are listening to this episode and you hear me reference patreon.com slash Trigar, that is no longer a valid URL, as I have changed it over to patreon.com slash thecomposerchronicles. I hope you enjoy, and I hope to see you on my Patreon page. In today's episode of The Composer Chronicles, I'm going to be talking about American composer Scott Joplin and his opera Tremanesha. As a life of Joplin and several aspects of the opera deal with things that fall under both African American culture and Black culture, I will be doing my best to associate each with the proper culture. I apologize in advance if I associate any facet with the wrong culture. I'm dedicated to talking about all composers on this podcast, so if I have associated anything with the wrong culture, please reach out to me with your feedback so that I don't make the same mistake again in future episodes. Okay, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Zodzetric, a conjurer, slowly walks up to Monisha and attempts to sell her a bag of luck, but her husband Ned scares him off before successfully convincing Monisha. Zodzetric slinks by Trimonisha, Monisha's daughter, and her friend Remus, but their attention is drawn to the sounds of the townspeople excitedly singing and preparing for a great day ahead. Trimonisha approaches them and asks if they would be interested in a ring play before they began their daily work. They happily oblige, and Andy, another friend of Trimonisha, leads them all into song and dance. As the festivities settle down, Trimonisha notices that all the women are wearing wreaths on top of their head. Wanting one for herself, she begins to climb a tree to acquire one, but Manisha quickly stops her. This tree is sacred. When Trimonisha was a baby, Manisha found her all alone beneath this very tree and took her in as her own child. Trimonisha is distraught to learn that her parents aren't her real parents, but her mother reminds her of how she was brought up and educated by them. Just then, Parson Altok arrives in his wagon and distracts the neighborhood with a speech that how all their superstitions are true. As he distracts them, the conjurers kidnap Trimonisha. As the preacher leaves, they notice that Trimonisha is gone, and Remus runs off to rescue her. Sodzetric, with his fellow conjurers Ludud, Simon, and Cephas, debate over what Trimonisha's punishment should be for foiling all their plans earlier that day. Bound and gagged, Trimonisha begins to see strange creatures dancing around her, but nobody seems to take notice of them. With their minds made up about what to do with her, Simon and Cephas take Trimonisha to be thrown into a giant wasp's nest. But Remus, disguised as the devil, arrives in time to scare them away. Trimonisha and Remus return home, 
and there they find that the neighborhood has captured Zoljedric and looted. Remus lectures him about good and evil, but Andy, still believing that they should be punished for their crimes, persuades the town people to attack. Jiminesha steps in to stop the fighting and begs Andy to forgive the conjurers. She sets them free, and Ludud promises to abandon conjuring forever, while Zozetric insists that he will never change. With the conjurers fleeing from the town, the townspeople elect Trimanesha as their new leader and celebrate her safe return. From Alexandrian Media, this is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of the world's greatest composers and their works. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 16, Better Late Than Never. In 1911, American ragtime composer Scott Joplin published what he believed to be one of his greatest works. He had struggled immensely to get his opera published, and so he undertook the financial burden of publishing it on his own. Even still, the opera was only published as a piano vocal score. Joplin had completed Trimonesia in 1910, having written both the score and the libretto on his own. Trimonesia wasn't Joplin's first attempt at writing an opera. In 1903, he produced his only other opera, titled A Guest of Honor, which focused around the 1901 White House Dinner hosted by President Theodore Roosevelt. The Guest of Honor that night was the civil rights leader Booker T. Washington. Joplin filed a copyright application for the opera that same year, but there was no evidence that the opera was ever copyrighted. What is known is that this opera has been lost due to financial complications. Joplin created his own touring opera company of 30 people in order to produce a guest of honor all around the United States. While the tour was either in Springfield, Illinois, or Pittsburgh, Kansas, a member of the company stole all the box office receipts. As a result, Joplin could not meet the company's payroll or pay any of the lodging. The score for a guest of honor was confiscated, along with Joplin's belongings, as payment for his unpaid bills. Up to this point, Joplin had already composed his two most recognizable works, The Maple Leaf Rag in 1899 and The Entertainer in 1902. As he was already a popular ragtime composer, A Guest of Honor was publicized as a ragtime opera. However, 
When it came time to compose Trimonesia, Joplin refused to call it a ragtime opera. Instead, he used ragtime-like passages and other black music in moments that reflected upon black culture of the time. Joplin also used this music to celebrate the music he grew up with as a child in the late 19th century. The works of German composer Richard Wagner, who I introduced through the opera Parsifal in episode 6, were a major source of inspiration for Joplin while writing Trimonesia. Ties can be drawn between Joplin's opera and those of Wagner's, namely the sacred tree that Trimonesia was found under, to the tree that Sigmund extracts the enchanted sword in, Die Valkyrie, and the dramatic retelling of the title character's origins to a similar plot device in Siegfried. Similarly, Wagner also inspired many of the opera's musical devices as well. Wagner wasn't the only influence on Trimonesia. Pieces of the opera are influenced by African-American folk tales and various aspects of African-American and Black culture of the time. Despite all of this, there was one more thing that influenced the themes in Trimonesia more than all of those things combined, and that was Joplin's own life. The opera is set in a former slave community inside a forest near the town of Joplin's childhood town, Texarkana, in September of 1884. September 1884 is important because it was the month and year that Joplin's second wife, Freddie Alexander, was born. The title character, Trimonesia, takes on characteristics of both Joplin and Alexander. From Alexander, Trimonesia inherited her educated and well-read traits, as well as being a proponent of women's rights in African-American culture. Furthermore, Trimonesia was a black teenager, educated by a white woman, and wished to educate her people out of ignorance and superstition by educating them. Joplin's third wife, Lottie Joplin, pointed out that these characteristics were highly reminiscent of Joplin's own life and beliefs, as he was a black man, educated by a white music teacher, and also believed that his community would grow stronger by educating themselves. As with Joplin's previous opera, A Guest of Honor, Trimonesia would have difficulties being staged. We'll find out what happened after the break. without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car 
and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiance. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash the composer chronicles and get your first 30 days for free you can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads so again go to getamazonmusic.com slash the composer chronicles and start listening on amazon music unlimited today mentioned, Joplin completed Trimonesia in 1910. As publishers refused to publish the opera for him, Joplin paid to publish the opera out of his own pocket in 1911. Even still, the opera was only published in a piano vocal score, and no orchestral score would be published in his lifetime. After its publication, Joplin sent a copy of the score to the American Musician and Art Journal to be reviewed. In it, they left a glowing, full-page review in their June edition, saying that the opera was the beginning of a new phase of musical art, and that the opera was truly an American masterpiece. With the endorsement of the journal, Joplin set out to stage the opera. In 1915, Joplin produced a concert read-through at the Lincoln Theater in Harlem, New York. Again, Joplin paid for this concert out of his own pocket, and even then it was only enough to get him singers while Joplin played the opera on the piano by himself. Those in the audience were not happy with Joplin's new work. One of his friends stated that because of the quality of the performance, his performance was no more than just a rehearsal. Furthermore, that same friend noted that the typical Harlem audience at the time would have been sophisticated enough to reject the African-American folk past that Joplin allured to, but not sufficiently enough to embrace it once again with open arms. This was the only performance of Joplin's beloved opera that was produced in his lifetime. The only other performance was a concert-style performance of the opera's ballet, titled Frolic of the Bears from Act Two, and was put on by the Martin Smith Music School. The following year, Joplin began to suffer from tertiary syphilis, more specifically neurosyphilis, a type of syphilis that infects one's central nervous system. In January 1917, the syphilis began to infect his brain, and he was admitted into the Manhattan State Hospital, a mental institution in New York City. Joplin's condition would continue to worsen until he died of syphilitic dementia on April 1, 1917. From there, Trimonesia would be forgotten. The score was lost, and no performances would be staged. However, in 1970, the score was rediscovered and on October 22, 1971, excerpts from the opera were presented in concert form at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. Even better, on January 27, 1972, the music department of the Morehouse College and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra jointly produced the opera's world premiere 
directed by Katherine Dunham, who was a black dancer, choreographer, author, educator, anthropologist, and social activist. The premiere was conducted by Robert Shaw, who was one of the first major American conductors to hire both black and white singers for his chorale. The opera was received incredibly well amongst audiences and critics alike, and has been since considered to be one of the greatest American operas. All of the notes for the orchestration have been completely lost. The only documentation of the opera that survived was Joplin's piano vocal score. From the world premiere and forward, a wide variety of composers have undertaken the task of orchestrating the opera, such as T.J. Anderson, Gunther Schuller, and Rick Benjamin. Since that Atlanta premiere, the opera has been performed all over the United States and even made its way to Broadway. While I'm sure that Joplin would have been disappointed that his greatest work was unperformed for many decades, I'm sure that he's happy knowing that it finally succeeded once it was given the chance. This episode of the Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and produced by me, Stephen Trigar. The music is by Daryl Banner. Other music and sources used for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on alexandrianmedia.org. The Composer Chronicles is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cron Podcast. That's C-H-R-O-N Podcast. So be sure to go and follow the show and share it with your friends and family. Also, there is a membership to the show through Patreon. For as little as $1.50 a month, you'll get ad-free episodes, access to the member-only podcast Unscripted, and other resources for the show. Click on the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash Trigar to become a member today. By becoming a member, you're directly supporting me, and it allows me to give you more content with even greater quality. If you'd like to show and want to rate and review it, the best place to do that is still on Apple Podcasts. Next week, I'm joined by opera singer Erica Willens. She will share with you what it's like to be an opera singer in our modern age, what some of the best composers are for singers, and what opera looks like now as an art form compared to what it used to be. So join us next week to hear Erica's wonderful interview. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.